This episode of Running From Cops contains some pretty rough scenes of policing on television, as well as audio of people in distressing situations which you might find upsetting. Thanks for listening. Previously on Running From Cops. I would say that in the history of television, there is no simpler, better show than the format of Cops. I believe it is wrong to present as entertainment the actions of people who may be having the worst day of their lives. What I see is the police department as a political organization trying to get control of the message. Um, would you mind if I check to make sure there's nothing illegal in the car? Okay. The shows do justice to our law enforcement officers. These gentlemen are under fire. And John said to me, I can do this for you every week. I'm the pizza man. I deliver. <laughs> uh, Langley Productions, and Mr. Langley himself, uh, has been able to make a boatload of money. I knew that television could be a modern-day form of justice. Episode 2, Shooting Fish in a Barrel. Uh, my name is Joe Petroselli. I'm currently a high school teacher at Passaic County Technical Institute, Prior to that, I spent 25 years in New Jersey law enforcement. I was with the Passaic County Sheriff's Department. So I saw you on Cops. You saw me on Cops, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I'm, I'm intimately familiar with both episodes. What? <laughs> Do you watch it like over and over again? Well, I show them to my, my high school kids every year. And every year. Oh, we, get we, out of here. Oh, they love it. The kids, you know, first of all, to see me when I was young, <laughs> not gray hair and thin. You know, that's one thing. And the other is that Joe Petroselli teaches criminal justice in that high school. I explained to him what I did, why I did it, how I comported myself. So, yes, I, I watch those episodes at least once a year in my class. They're also a good start to understand what it's like to be a cop and be a cop on cops at the same time. This is Cops, Season 16, Episode 16, Segment 3, Passaic County, New Jersey, 2004. Right now, I'm patrolling housing projects in Patterson because a lot of individuals come here by vehicle to buy from different neighborhoods. It's daytime. Sun's out. We're driving by low-rise industrial buildings crowded out by high-rise weeds, looking for drug activity by a public housing development. Petroselli looks exactly like he sounds. He is meaty, just a big brick wall of a guy. And uh, it's a source of a very high crime area. Uh, logistically, the way it works is there's a cameraman and there's a sound guy. The cameraman is in the front row with you. Or he's in the front seat right next to you. Yeah. And he's kind of filming you the whole time. He's kind of talking to you the whole time. Um, he's getting some material. In the back is the audio guy with a big, long microphone. Do you have to make sure that they stay safe or are they on their own? Sir, they're on their own. In fact, right now, this white male just bought from this black male. We're going to try to get the black male. About 15 seconds into the segment, he sees a kid buying drugs, and he goes after him. White male, red hockey shirt, running on 23rd The guy's more like jogging. And Petroselli kind of rolls up alongside him slowly and yells out his open car window. Hey, get down, bud. Hey, hands on the heel right here. Right here, right here. It seems like they've both been here before. What the hell's wrong with you? Spread your legs out. And he puts him up against the hood of the car. Don't you run. Come on. You got anything else on you? No. You got needles? No. Just that heroin? Let's go. Have a seat in the back of my car. Let's go. Sir, let me tell you what happened. Um, you know, I chased the kid about 
30 seconds. Takes me about 20 seconds to handcuff him, 10 seconds to put him in the back of the car. Have a seat. Stay still. You got the right to remain silent. Refuse to answer any questions. You the right to I was making my arrests in like two or three minutes. But each cop segment is about seven minutes long. So Petroselli says it took a little reverse engineering from the producers to make it usable. So they told me, basically, Joe, you have to get this guy out of the car. Talk to him a little bit. See if you could, you know, maybe drag this out a little bit so we could use this episode. Step out, bud. Look nervous as hell, man. You crying? What's your name? Which is extremely rare, sir. I never do that. I would never take, for the safety of myself and the safety of, of the criminal actor, I would never remove him at the scene. But they wanted it done, so we kind of took him out, and we, uh, I talked to him about his drug problem. This is all for you? Who are you selling this to? No, I have a habit. You have a habit? 20 bags a week? No, 20 bags, like, in a couple of days. In a couple of days? And how come you're only coming once a week, then? Because I'm sick the other days. I can't afford it. Do you think what they portray on cops is real? Do they accurately portray the profession of policing? No. I've never seen some cop on there directing school traffic. I've never seen a cop closing a road for a, you know, for eight hours because there's a broken water main break. So do they accurately portray our profession? I don't think they endeavor to do that. Petroselli's arrest was a drug arrest. Not a dealer, but a low-level user. One of the millions made since Ronald Reagan ramped up the war on drugs in this country. On today's show, how the drug war made cops possible, and how the show Cops, in turn, would help change how many Americans expect their police to behave. I'm Dan Taberski, and this is Running From Cops. There are only two movies that I absolutely will not watch ever again. First, Marley and me, obviously. The second is a clockwork orange. And it's because of the eyeball scene. So there's a guy, and he's strapped to a gurney in a small theater. And there's this big screen in front of him, and it's playing video of all these horrible things. Beatings, rape, murder, on a loop. Stuff you don't want to look at. Only this guy, he has no choice because this scientist hooks him up to a contraption that holds his eyelids open, like with little pinchers. It just peels them back so you can't close them. So he has to look at all the horrible things over and over. One of our early test subjects described it as being like death, sense of stifling or drowning. It's a really hard scene to watch. But the methodology of it, from a reporting standpoint, not a terrible idea. So, Courtney. Hey, Dan. Uh, you, uh, you were tasked with something. Yeah. What was that? This is Courtney Harrell, one of the producers for Headlong. Courtney is in Cops Deep. 
So we were talking a lot about like how real COPS is and kind of decided as a group that if we were going to have that conversation, that what we needed to do is watch as many episodes of COPS as we could possibly get our hands on and kind of break down what was actually happening in those episodes in terms of race and gender of COPS, suspects and victims if they appear in a segment, uh, as well as type of crime that happens in a segment. The goal was to log the details of each episode about the suspects and the alleged crimes involved. We wanted to see the patterns of how cops present policing, things you wouldn't pick up on by watching a couple episodes. We are not the first people to try this. There was one other study done in the early 90s, but cops was really new then, and so the sample size was really small. Yeah, it was not a lot at all. And how many did we watch? (laughs) Let me pull it up for you. Are there commas in the number? Uh, So there are not commas in the number, uh, but (laughs) at the end of the day, we watched just under 850 episodes of Cops. We had a team of six screeners who together watched them all, gathering over 68,000 data points. Then we brought on a data journalist to help us analyze our numbers and make sure they were kosher. We'll be talking about our findings a bunch in the next few episodes, but the first thing that jumped out at us is the type of crime that COPS focuses on. More than any other type of crime, more than property crime and violent crime, more than prostitution and domestic disputes, it's drug crime that you see the most of on COPS. 35%, over a third of all arrests on COPS are for drug crime. That's three times the rate of real life as the percentage of arrests. This discrepancy, it's not by chance. It's by design. And you know who might agree with me? Geraldo Rivera. 2,000 times a day, every day across America. Cops like these prepare to bust another suspected pusher. Just one strategy in the escalating war on drugs. Sometime during the course of this live program, you'll be a witness as a pusher goes down for the count. This is 1986. It's a couple years before cops came around. And Geraldo Rivera hosts this syndicated special on TV. And it's called... American Vice, the real story of the doping of our nation. What you're about to see is not a made-for-TV movie or a television police drama. This is real life. It's the kind of thing you might turn off in two seconds. Or you might watch the whole thing and goof on Geraldo and his disguises as he goes, air quotes, undercover, investigating drugs. In one, he is sporting a Yosemite Sam mustache and a do-rag. In another, he is no joke, dressed exactly like Al Pacino in Scarface. But the biggest gimmick, the real hook, was three drug busts aired live. The search warrant is being served on the house of uh, a Bahamian national who is allegedly a big-time, a heavyweight cocaine dealer. DEA agents, the police, all on board with the whole thing. Not subjects, but actually partners in the production. Uh, The bus is being carried out by eight to ten officers, as you can see. Uh, They're in his house now. He's down on the floor. Uh, And the producer who shot that live drug bust for Geraldo? John Langley, the creator of Cops, the pizza man himself. That was the seed for the show. The idea that working with law enforcement, being on their team, would get them access to crazy, ratings-grabbing footage of the burgeoning war on drugs. Did you know that you have an urban dictionary entry? An urban dictionary entry? No, I didn't know I had an urban. I, haven't, I had no idea. This is Sheriff John Bunnell, 
who was not a sheriff anymore, but the title stuck. Cops made Bunnell reality show famous as they followed and filmed him fighting the drug war in Portland, Oregon. It says, Sheriff John Bunnell, a man with a plan and everything he says goes, walking through a minefield without fail, walking through a tornado and his hair is still perfectly shaped. Oh yeah, I like to get in people's faces on occasion. Now the hair thing, I can't help it if my hair is always in proper position, I mean. Bunnell was working in a Portland drug unit in the late 1980s when the Reagan White House jump-started the war on drugs and policing changed for good in America. Drug sentences became harsher for low-level offenders. Mandatory minimums were voted into law. Military-grade equipment was being put into the hands of police for drug busts, and federal funds started pouring into local PDs, considered the front lines. I went from having five guys to 25 guys overnight. I didn't do anything, you guys. Arresting six, seven, eight, nine guys a month, they're arresting over 300 people a month. I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. I think he should go to jail. So he's not helping us and cooperate with us at all. I think that a little dose of the Justice Center would do this young man a world of good. I really do. And, and I think we did it quite successfully. And we wouldn't have done it quite successfully if it wasn't for cops. Because there was no better way than to spread the message about drugs. As the drug war took off, cops fell in line, selling it to the American public with millions tuning in to fresh drug busts on Saturday nights and turning officers like John Bunnell into the first reality show stars. On numbers of occasions, we were asked to give our autographs to people we had just arrested, which I thought was kind of interesting. Wait, what? Yeah, people thought it was a mark of honor to be arrested by my drug unit, and uh, it was incredible. It, it was, I mean, it was absolutely unbelievable how famous we got by sight. The camera crews on cops were helping to fight the war on drugs. Figuratively, as good PR, but Bunnell says sometimes literally, as actual drug busts were going down, and in ways not even the producers in L.A. knew about. And we had some situations in which the camera people and whatever got involved in some dicey situations with us. And I also know that I would, I don't know, well, I shouldn't even get into that. What? The minute you say you don't want to get into it, that's all I want to get into. I know that most of those people carried a gun. And it, it was it was good. I was thank God they did. You know, they were uh, kind of our sworn in special deputies, and uh, they saved the bacon a few times. And I'm glad they were there. Nothing as is compelling as cops breaking down doors and throwing people on the ground and arresting them, the pile of cocaine or heroin that they had seized. So it appealed to all the kind of prurient and fearful side in America at that time. This is Ethan Nadelman, the founder of the Drug Policy Alliance, an anti-drug war advocacy group. What was, and still is, portrayed as a necessary drug war on the show Cops Nadelman sees as hysteria. It was drugs are immoral, drug dealers are evil. The notion that people who sold drugs, not to kids, people who sold drugs to other adults were committing an offense that was worse than rape or murder. You know, George Bush, the first George Bush, gets up in 1989 and does a crack in America nationally televised speech. Good evening. This is the first time since taking the oath of office that I felt an issue was so important. And he holds up a bag of cocaine that somebody had bought outside the White House. This, this is crack cocaine. 
And then Mike Isikoff at the Washington Post does a little expose revealing that the way they set that up was the cops had to lure this drug dealer to the White House so they could bust him there. And when they tried to lure him to the White House, the drug dealer's first question was, where's the White House? I mean, we just went hysterically crazy. Well, what happens if we just arrest a few hundred thousand mostly black and brown young men and lock them up in upstate prisons? Will that have any impact on the drug problem in America? But by and large, nobody was stopping to ask that question. But while cops gladly document the most action-packed parts of the drug war, they leave some things out. Things that would show the mixed motivations the police may have for arresting so many people for so many years. Come on out here. Just keep your hands where I can see him. I see the dope pipe in your hand, dude. For example, up until 2016, federal grants for the drug war were often tied to arrest rates, meaning the more arrests a local PD makes, the more money they get from the feds. It could be a big time dealer or just some guy with a joint in his glove box. It doesn't matter. An arrest is an arrest. Pills, other narcotics. You're under arrest. We're going to get you wrapped up there, bud. More and more police departments are going, ah, let's skip the hard stuff, right? Let's go for the easy stuff. We all know that going after, uh, you know, drug sellers is like shooting fish in a barrel. If you arrest 10 drug dealers, they're replaced by 10 more, right? If you arrest 100, they're replaced by 100 more. And I got to say, I hear that. And the evil TV producer that still lurks inside my brain puts myself in the producer of Cops' place, and I think, great. A consistent supply of arrests to constantly refill season after season of my ratings juggernaut. We increased the number of people locked up simply for violating a drug law from 50,000 in 1980 to roughly half a million by the early 2000s. And America, as a result, attained not just the greatest number of people behind bars in the world. It's the highest incarceration rate of any democratic society in history. I think that a little dose of the Justice Center would do this young man a world of good. We were just naturals. We had nothing to hide. Sheriff John Bonnell again. And we liked spreading the message about how evil drugs were. We just really felt that we were doing something noble. But for Bunnell and other officers on cops that we talked to, the war on drugs over time began to feel questionable and sometimes futile. In recent years, there's been a lot of blowback about the war on drugs. You know, the penalties were too harsh. And, you know, it just basically led to mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. How does that sit with you now? Uh, probably the way I did then. I thought it was basically true myself. They get arrested for a gram of crack or something and they go to prison for three years. I, we, I always thought that was kind of ridiculous because once that happens, we have totally lost them. When I became a cop, I think Reagan was still the president. So the war on drugs was raging. This is Joe Petroselli again. Uh, the New Jersey State Police with the tip of the sword on the war on drugs. So from the minute I entered his profession, I've been involved in the war on drugs. How'd you get started on this? I got started like eight years ago. The heroin makes you this sick when you come off it? Yeah. When was the last time you did a bag? Now, the war on drugs was always a personal dilemma for myself because in my personal life, I advocated for the legalization of marijuana. I also said I got hired to do a job. 
And I think it would be absolutely chaotic if each officer only enforced the laws that they felt were valid. Somebody makes the laws, somebody enforces the laws. It's not my job to decide if that's a good law or a bad law. I don't know of any objective measure that the war on drugs would be considered a success. But COPS is still fighting that war. Drug arrests, while still high, began a slow decline in 2006. But our data shows that on COPS, drug arrests haven't gone down or even stayed the same. They've gone up. In the 2017 season, 44% of all people arrested on COPS were arrested for drugs. A constant stream of low-level drug offenders in cuffs for the cameras. I just want to pause here for a second to tell you about Stitcher Premium. If you can't wait to hear more episodes of Running From Cops, you can actually binge the entire season right now, ad-free. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com headlong and use promo code headlong. Okay, back to the show. How real is Cops? Cops is as real as we can get it. I, I see it as a documentary. John Langley has two of the biggest leather couches I have ever seen in his office in Santa Monica. Langley is a Jack Palance act-alike, and at 75, he still produces the show, now with the help of his son, Morgan. It's, it's certainly unusual. Not everybody works with their father, but... Um... <laughs> Who is sunk into the big leather couches with us, in a short sleeve button-down, taking pulls off a vape the size of a VHS cassette. Like any decent conversation about a reality show, we launch right into Greek philosophy. Really? Was Plato your favorite philosopher? Yeah. Plato? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, or Plato, Nietzsche. One yeah, or well, there you go. But Plato and Aristotle kind of said everything. that. Yeah, and then you had everybody else after Plato and Aristotle. Guys, this is not where I expected this to be but going. I love Nietzsche. Sorry. I mean, Nietzsche was brilliant. Your first thought, of course, is bullshit. You make cops. But it's not. I was working on a PhD at one time in the philosophy of aesthetics, which has great application in the world. What is the philosophy of aesthetics? You know, Longinus and Kant and Hegel and all these, Plato and et cetera and so forth. It, it's theories of beauty and what makes things beautiful, particularly in terms of literature and poetry and all that kind of thing. To understand the aesthetic philosophy of the John Langley oeuvre, the syllabus starts not with cops, but with the very first thing listed on his IMDb page from 1983. On the plane down here, I watched Cocaine Blues. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's going way back. Cocaine has become the number one illicit drug in the United States. Cocaine is now becoming the in drug from the Bowery to Beverly Hills. Cocaine. Cocaine Blues is a documentary directed by Langley, along with Malcolm Barber, who was also his collaborator on Cops in the early days. It's actually kind of a great movie. It's funny, but impactful. It holds up. It's a good feeling. Makes you feel good. Like you just wake up on Christmas morning. It's a false feeling. Where was that coming from? What was the origin of it? What, cocaine blues? Yeah. Might have been my own little bout with cocaine that had something <laughs> to do with it. <laughs> it was the late 70s, early 80s. That was the, the cocaine explosion in Hollywood. And it's when cocaine became de rigueur. It was the... Rage, and it seemed innocuous enough. It's not like I'm a, a, 
an attic. It didn't last that long, but it lasted long enough to screw me up and make me realize I had a karmic debt. If John Langley has a karmic debt around drugs, he has either paid it back tenfold or he has dug himself way, way deeper into the red. This is Cops, 2018, season 31, episode four, segment one. This brings us back for a bit to Spokane, Washington. I wanna break this segment down for you because of the very specific part of reality that it shows. And then I want to tell you what we found out afterwards. I grew up here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I love Spokane. It's real close to a bunch of lakes, hunting areas, fishing. Officer Brandon Lynch is cruising in his cop car. It's dark out. So we mostly just drive past Neon, a Chase Bank, a sports outlet. So we're going to stop this bike here. He's not using any of his signals, and he's driving off sidewalks and all over the road. Lynch spots a guy in shorts and a bomber jacket, too big for the bike he's pedaling and swerving in and out of traffic. Hi, how's it going? Why don't you have a seat on the ground there for me? Hey, you got your ID on you? Uh, no, I don't. No? Well, how about your name? Randy. He says his name is Randy. He looks tired. The lights from the cop car turn everything behind him a pulsing blue. Well, why did I get blown? Well, for one, you don't have a helmet. Like he's being detained inside a tropical fish tank. I'm running the name he gave me right now. Back in the cop car for a little detective work. And it looks like he actually provided me the false name and his true identity, David, has an active warrant for a DOC violation. Copy. So why don't you stand up, put your hands on your back for me, please. Randy David runs. He only gets about five feet. Turn around. The struggle ends pretty quickly. Everyone calms down. Are you injured at all, David? <laughs> Are you injured at all? And they find syringes on him. Do you want medics to check you out? Uh, <clears throat> all right, David, we can roll you up to your butt, okay? We can roll you to the right. And then things take a turn, and very quickly. David? He's out, body limp. David, we know what you take, so we know how to help you. They think he probably had some drugs on him and swallowed the evidence. Too much of it. He drank some soda. He might have tried to get rid of whatever he had right Decent then and there. there. Yeah. Swallowing. Backup arrives. 43 for Caddis, give it a dose of Narcan. They administer Narcan, a drug that counteracts the effects of opioids. It's given like nasal spray through his nostril. I did give him a dose of Narcan because some people were pinpointing. Yeah. So inside of his pockets, he had this blue container. And when I opened it up, a small little baggie of white substance, which I believe to be methamphetamine, and a small baggie of marijuana came out of it. So we're thinking that's might have been what he ingested and might have caused this medical issue tonight. He's revived, and they put him into an ambulance, and Officer Lynch sums it up for the camera. So we'll go give him the help he needs. He'll be cleared from the hospital and be... Going back down to jail. And that's it. Commercial. First of all, legitimately, wow. A real-life, life-and-death situation. And again, just as a TV producer, for your cameras to have been there at that moment to capture it, 
It's pretty stunning. But it's all from the cop's point of view. The camera rides in his car. It records his take on what's happening. On cops, the police are like avatars in a game, where the only POV that matters is the players. What's coming at them? How they react? And from that cop's point of view, he just saved the life of some junkie who was trying to hide the evidence and almost accidentally died in the process. But it's only half the story. If that. I've been on the run for about nine months, and I'm a 25-year addict to drugs and been on probation for a long time, and I always get out and screw up and relapse and get back into that lifestyle. We were able to track down the suspect who OD'd. His name is David. So I had a lot of issues with mental health and drug addiction, and I was really depressed at the time. And my brilliant plan was uh, I actually ingested two grams of heroin and almost two grams of methamphetamine before I even had an interaction with the police. Oh, and, and shit. I was attempting to commit suicide. My idea, my brilliant idea was to just ingest all my drugs. I was sick of being on the run and being high and being in a depressed state of mind. I just decided, you know, I'm just going to eat all my drugs and just ride my bike till I collapse. And hopefully I don't wake up. Had you ever uh, overdosed before? Yeah, I have overdosed uh, three times in my life. I overdosed on heroin before, and before that it was uh, morphine. So oh. it's been opiates all three times. And had they ever had you ever gotten Narcan before? That's what they revived you with this time, right? No, I've never been Narcan before. Yeah, apparently you were the first time the police had used Narcan in Spokane. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I've been clean now for 15, 16 months off everything. Yeah, congratulations. But I still have dreams about it, you know, still think about it. And it sucks because now I have to unlearn all that and learn how to function as a normal person without it. I've never actually had a real job. I've never had a driver's license. The only times I've worked were in prison or jail settings never paid taxes. I don't even know what a W-2 form looks like. So I've wasted a lot of my life on drugs in, in that world. How long did it take you to realize that you had been on cops? Well, shoot, my attorney told me about it. And I was like, what? And she brought it in for me to watch. So I watched the actual whole arrest and everything. It's only one-sided. They see one side. They see this dude who's a junkie. The cops rescue him. So all they see is that their taxpayers' money is, is going to pay to rescue some junkie that they probably think in their head isn't worth the shit. You know, I guess they look at me as a bad guy. You have 30 seconds remaining. I'm the addict, do criminal stuff to, you know, feed my habits, so I'm the bad guy. And they're the good guys, you know, who's never been involved in a life or don't even understand it. So, and they, maybe that's a form of entertainment where they see the bad guy get caught. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't really see the point in it. David is at the Airway Heights Correction Center in Spokane on month 21 of a two-year sentence stemming from the incident filmed by cops in Spokane that night. David estimates he has spent six of his last 25 years in prison solely for low-level drug possession. Six years. Later this season, we'll return to Spokane 
where the city council is getting ready to vote on making it harder for shows like Cops to shoot in their city. There's one more thing that came up in my conversation with David. When I asked him about why, once he saw the cameras, once he knew it was cops, why he would even agree to be on cops. Because what a lot of people don't know is that the producers of cops do need David's consent to show his face on the show. He has to agree. Did you ever sign did you ever sign anything uh, a release from the from the producers of the show to let you appear on it? No, I've never signed anything at all. Nothing from nowhere. Are they required to get permission? Uh, they are. They're required to, to have you sign a release. Yeah, I never signed anything anywhere, anytime. Ever wonder why anyone would agree to be on Cops? So did we. And we found a lot of people who have been on Cops that are asking the very same question. Just how much power are the police ceding to a reality show? And what are the police asking for in return? That's next time on Running From Cops. How do you get the people to agree to be on the show? Well, you got to talk people in it. you got to persuade them. Any producer in his worth of salt knows that. They're telling me you're charging me with a felony trespassing, and I'm going to jail if I don't sign a release for him. He was like... You either sign the paper or you go to jail. He put the window up and he walked away. That should be against the law, that they're allowing these producers to lie to these young men like that. Hey, we're going to take your face, your picture, and your shitty situation you were in and, you know, give you the middle finger. I've talked to people who have who said they don't remember signing releases. Yeah, and you know what I say to that? Bullshit. Yeah, she signed a waiver, but it was not voluntary. Nothing's voluntary when you got handcuffs on Running From Cops is produced by Henry Milofsky and me, I'm Dan Taberski. Our associate producers are Courtney Harrell and Diane Hodson. Joel Lovell is our editor. And thanks to Leela Day for editorial input. Our music is by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The team at Topic Studios is Lee Talmalad and Lisa Leingang. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts right now. It means a lot. It's also a nice way to let other people discover the show. If you are listening to this and you were on Cops, we would love to talk to you. We've talked to some already, but we would love to hear from more of you about what your experiences have been with the show. Call us at 209-2-ON-COPS and leave a voicemail. That's 209-266-2677, or you can email us at copspodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode dealt with the issue of suicide. If you or someone you know is feeling suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-TALK. It's free, it's 24-7, and it's confidential. And they can provide you with support, information, and local resources. Thanks for listening. 